Of course, if we're going to scale a SaaS, we need to have awesome customers and awesome customer adoption to the product. How do we get people to adopt once they start using it? And how do we keep them happy? And how do we keep them around for a long time, making sure the renewal rate's amazing, the retention rate's awesome, and churn is very low? Lots of things that we need to figure out. Fortunately, Luke Diaz from DBT Ventures came in. He has an amazing customer success background. He's encountered all these problems before, and he knows exactly how to solve them. And now what he does is he also now helps invest in other startups to help them grow. So I even asked him about what he's looking for, what types of companies he's looking for. And now also, how can you make sure your company looks amazing to an investor? So if you're an early stage startup and you want to get and keep awesome customers and you want to know how to build your company so that people want to fund it, this is the episode for you. Check it out. Welcome to Scale Your SaaS, the podcast that gives you proven techniques and formulas for boosting your revenue and achieving your dream exit. Brought to you by a guy who's done just that multiple times. Here is your host, Matt Wallach. And welcome to Scale Your SaaS. Thank you very much for being here. By the way, our goal is to help you do exactly that. Scale your SaaS by generating a whole bunch of leads, closing a lot of deals, and understanding how to put the right processes in place so you can grow your company. And that's what we're here to do. So make sure if you're new, subscribe to the channel. Hit that subscribe button. That way you're going to get all of the episodes. You're going to be notified when we have amazing, awesome guests helping you understand how to better scale your SaaS. Guests like who I have with us today, Luke Diaz. Luke, how are you doing? Doing well. Huge fan of the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Let me make sure everybody knows who you are, Luke. So Luke, he's the founder at DBT Ventures. DBT stands for Do Big Things. And what he does, he advises and invests in startups with a focus on supporting underrepresented founders building amazing software and consumer products. Luke's passion is building and leading high-performance customer success orgs, CSM, AM, SA support to drive three outcomes accelerate product adoption, drive quantifiable business impact for customers, and achieve best-in-class gross and net retention. He is very skilled, very strong in what he does, and I'm so glad to have him here. Once again, Luke, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Excited to uh, chat with you. Yeah, likewise. So tell me, what's been going on with you and what do you have coming up? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, DBT Ventures invests uh, globally in uh, software and consumer products. And we're really looking for underdogs. We, uh, we found out that um, if you look at, say, female founders, for example, about 20% of female founders start companies. Of all the founders out there, about 20% of female. And um, I was shocked to read that they only receive about 2% of the venture capital funding out there. So another way to think about that is if females received 10 times as much funding as they currently do, they would still be roughly underfunded, um, which is shocking to me. So, and it, sadly, a, a similar trend applies to people of color and uh, like typically non-white backgrounds. So we're really looking for underdogs, people that may have missed the VC uh, access to that network and, and trying to back founders who are underdogs and hungry. Wow. What a cool mission. And what made you want to start this? Where did this all come from? You know, it, it happened somewhat organically. As you mentioned, my background's in customer success. So I built customer success teams five times, three times from the ground up and twice coming into an existing team. And folks started reaching out to me and said, hey, would love if we could get your thoughts. We just started, you know, we we just hit half million in revenue, starting to think about customer success. Would you mind being an advisor? We'll, you know, we'll give you some equity or whatever to make it worth your time. And um, 
So a handful of companies started doing that. And I just would advise them on, hey, here's some things to think about. Here, here's the mistakes I've made. Maybe they'll be useful to you. Um, and then when you're working closely with founders, uh, fundraising comes up naturally. So I had the opportunity to invest in a few uh, seed early A rounds. And yeah, so kind of it, it kind of was like grassroots, just trying to help people and add some value as they're building their dream of a, of a scalable SaaS company. Very cool. I love it. Okay. So what are some of the most exciting trends that you're seeing within tech and within SaaS today? And what are they doing to, what are, how, how's the industry changing because of that? I think one of the things to keep an eye on is we're all familiar with, with AI and, and more, more recently, uh, large language models, and they're just becoming cheaper and cheaper. So the, one of the themes I'm really looking closely at is the commoditization of, of LLMs as they continue to proliferate all different parts of the software ecosystem. Um, the fact that they're getting cheaper as technology tends to be deflationary is really exciting for founders who can build in that ecosystem and keep their costs down while they're trying to build apps or tooling to serve this massively growing space. So that, gets, that trend is, is really exciting and I think it's meaningful for new market entrance. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that totally. There's a lot of exciting things happening there. And it's crazy. It seems like every other day, there's some new piece of technology or growth that's happening there. It's just wild to see. And it's so cool that so many awesome, smart leaders are, are taking advantage of it and finding new creative ways to innovate. Isn't that pretty amazing? It really is. Uh, we just wrote a check to a company called True Foundry that is making basically a software that allows you to manage, deploy, and fine-tune large language models across uh, all, across different LLMs and across cloud. So there's this, there's this really interesting space where it's kind of like the shovels to the gold miners, if you will. They're, they're really making management of LLMs at scale much easier and cross-cloud, which I think will be a, a growing need as... Um, as developers want the best model for the best use case. So you won't be confined to one. You could imagine a suite of 20 LLMs across three different clouds. So I think there's a lot of value in that layer uh, to for founders to think about as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I want to touch on you have some awesome experience in customer success, as I mentioned earlier. So if you're a software leader and you're, you're starting to generate some interest, you're getting people into your system, how can a leader, how can somebody make sure that those early customers adopt and start using the product? That's a great question. I, I think back to some of the best advice I've gotten on that topic that's really informed my approach basically came from, from Y Combinator. And there's this concept of doing the unscalable things that allow you to figure out what you need to scale. So that's something I'll just throw out there um, from Paul Graham, where one of the software advantages when you're a startup is you can do these unnatural one-off unscalable things to get your customer to value. And most of the startups I work with are doing this. It might be hopping on a plane to help them deploy the product. Um, it might be uh, spending two hours educating a new team on how this workflow impacts their tech stack or maybe their, their API workflow. So don't think scale too soon. Be confident to do those unscalable, unnatural things to get them to value. Because then once you figure that out, you can figure out ways to use technology to actually scale that deliverable 
to hundreds of customers instead of dozens. So that's one thing that I try and anchor on early on. Yeah, I, I echo that advice as well. That's something that I've counseled my clients on as well. I think that there's so much talk about, you got to make sure to scale, build for scale, get your foundation for scale and all that stuff. And obviously this show is also called Scale Your SaaS. And that's something everybody wants to do. But I think we get too hung up on that in the early days and we start to only do that. And you're absolutely right. I think in the early days, we have to figure out what's best for the customer, for the users. And sometimes we have to figure that out through yep. things that don't scale. And once you, I love that you talked about how we'll figure out how to scale it. We'll figure out how to get those efficiencies. But right now, we need to make sure we're doing things that don't scale. That's a great point. Great. So what strategies would you use if uh, now we've got them in, they're using the product? What do you think that some of the best companies are doing that's helping customers stay satisfied and stay loyal? I appreciate that question. I, I kind of think like if... Um... If you think of cash, like the only unforgivable sin in business is running out of cash. If you think of cash as like the lifeblood of a company or a startup, I think of customer feedback as like the oxygen, if you will. So the theme here is making it as easy as possible for customers to constantly give you feedback because, you know, founders might not want to hear this, but the, the a lot of the customers, they don't think about the software you're building all day. They usually use it for a point in time and then they're off to the rest of their busy day. So when they're engaged, that's why I'm a huge fan of in-product feedback tools, uh, a quick email, um, even texting with your early customers. Just make it super easy. Remove all those barriers so that that feedback loop, that oxygen is really, is really flowing. So that's something that I find sometimes gets in the way of faster product development is that there's not an easy way to share that feedback. It's reserved for QBRs or like big meetings, but it should be iterative and on the fly if, you know, in the ideal sense. An another thing that's really worked well was creating these customer advisory boards, or I've, I've also heard them called customer advisory councils. We're talking five to 10 of your customers grabbing dinner once or twice a year all together so that they can share their shared experiences with your product. You treat them like VIPs, give them that, you know, inside baseball roadmap. Like here's what the product vision's looking like. And it's also great form for feedback. And so knock on wood of the hundreds of customers I've had come through a customer advisory board or be part of it, none of them have ever churned because they felt wow. like part of the core team, that true partnership. And um, again, it's an unscalable thing. It's harder to do at scale until you get into like event planning and conferences. But I think anyone can schedule a nice dinner and have a debrief with your your top roster. I think that can be really powerful for relationship building as well. Totally agree. I think that is super powerful. And I, I've done that more informally at conferences. Like you said, at a conference, we'll host a dinner of mm. five, 10 customers. But you know, outside of that, if you don't have a conference where everybody's coming yeah. together, figure it out, make it happen because you're right. It's been mm -hmm. so powerful having those conversations and just connecting with them on a personal level. So from both the business side and the personal side, it's it's amazing what you can do just having those types of relationships with your customers. That's fantastic. Yeah, it gets me fired up. <laughs> I can see that. That's awesome. So uh, now that we uh, have talked about how do we make sure they adopt, how do we make sure that they're they're happy? What what about renewals? As a lot of companies are on annual renewal plans, what steps are some of your your best customers, your best clients taking to to improve their renewal rates? 
That's a that's a great question. There's a lot of um, there's some nuance in in how I'm going to answer it because I'll kind of invert the question and and try and answer it from like what are the main drivers of churn? So like what's the headwind working against that renewal rate? Depending on what data you look at and the research I've done, thirty to forty percent of churn can be traced back to a failed onboarding. So if you're looking for and and what I mean by that is if they didn't really, if they didn't truly get in the workflow and adopt the product in a repeatable, habitual way, human nature tends to revert to the mean. And all of a sudden you're coming up, you know, you're six, nine months into your first year and usage is lackluster, value is lackluster, and you're kind of setting the stage for a churn risk. So if you're looking for a great place to start, I like to interrogate the onboarding process, the rigor and the steps that are designed by the company to have this new customer go through. Um, so that's one that's one kind of nugget I like to share with founders, um, just because it's such an outsized driver of churn, um, based on my research. And the second piece that I think of, Matt, is like customers vote with their dollars. So if they do churn, the worst thing you can do is not learn from that. And it's hard, right? Like I've been there when a customer cancels, like it is heart wrenching and it's, it's a really bad feeling. And that bad feeling can sometimes lead us to be closed off, less curious, try and protect the ego, whatever you want to say, but it's a great time to listen. And so if you have, um, if you're in the unfortunate scenario where you have lost a customer, having a process for how that exit interview happens in the, the questions that you're asking in a, in a structured way will be worth their weight in gold to product development teams as your as your company grows. You just have this treasure trove of learnings. They're failures, but they're also learnings because hey, we didn't we didn't renew because of XYZ. Like you just have this arsenal of knowledge to inform your go-to-market motion and, and your product roadmap, frankly. So the lack of a churn process or a lack of an exit interview process is one of the biggest mistakes I see some founders make early on. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's amazing how many companies don't have an exit interview process because you're absolutely right. You can learn so much. And in fact, I'm a huge advocate of having conversations with your prospects and customers all through the entire customer cycle, all the way from the very beginning, all the way through when they're mm-hmm. onboarding, getting started, and as we talked about with the with the dinners, and and then at the end, and you can just learn so much from those mm-hmm. conversations. And not having that exit interview is a killer because you're right; it does advise yeah. on the, the product. It advises on how you can work with them in the in the go to market as well as with them while you're uh, uh, having them as a customer. And it's just. It, it, it's super powerful. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that that's awesome advice for sure. I want to I want to switch over to your investor brain here because I've got I've got a question there and mm. a lot of software companies they're looking for funding. But from your perspective, what are investors like yourself looking for in a software company? What looks good and makes you say yes, this is it? That's a great question, Matt. That I think the number one thing that I'm looking for when I'm talking to a founder is resilience. And what I mean by that is if you scratch beneath the surface of resilience, there's usually some deep emotional need to see their vision fulfilled. Maybe it's a chip on their shoulder. Maybe it's growing up kind of 
hard having a lot of childhood struggles and like wanting to prove something to the world. Maybe it's just outright frustration and rage with the status quo <laughs> or what Frank Slootman calls like a malcontent posture. Like they're just pissed that the world works this way. I look for that like resilient chip on the shoulder because that tells me that when they do hit obstacles or setbacks or something goes sideways, they ha- they can reach down. They have a really deep well to draw from to respond to that challenge creatively all in. Uh, so that that's the number one thing I look for. Um, the product is really secondary because I, I believe in backing great founders. I, I, fi- I find like I make a decision based on the founder and then I rationalize based on the product hmm. um, traction and things that I learn after that. So double down on uh, invest like kind of that founder psychology, if you will. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And I love the chip on the shoulder thing. I've talked with lots of investors and, and people in funding, and I have not heard that one yet. But it makes a whole ton of sense because there's so much more motivation when you feel like you've been slighted, when you feel like yeah. people have kind of left you behind. And uh, I'm a big sports guy and in football, I love football players who have that chip on their shoulder, felt like they were disrespected. They go out and prove themselves. They work hard and they they make things happen. And so I, I think the same thing applies over here in startups. And I think that's, that's, that's a lot of fun to think about that way. So uh, what I want to ask is, what advice would you have for startups, early stage companies? They're seeking investment. They're wanting to grow. They want to improve their, their organization. What advice would you share with them, Luke? I, I would say two things. Number one, don't be afraid to try unconventional methods. I think we've gotten a little stuck in like X number of slides in a deck. And I, I feel like there's some constraints that have evolved. So tr- what I mean by trying unconventional methods, my friend Darwish in 2017 raised almost a million dollars by sending a very well-crafted email to his network. No pitch deck, just um, about 800 words of what they're building and exactly what they're requesting and why they need that money. So that's unconventional, right? And and that's something that um, I wish more founders did and kind of tried to try new channels and, and just don't be afraid to put it out there. Um, the second piece of advice that I found is more broadly applicable is to think funnel, not fundraising. Hmm. And so this might, you know, you're, you have an amazing sales background in building go-to-market orgs. And as a founder, you know that a lot of people are going to say no, but if you invite them into your circle and you can keep them updated on a monthly or quarterly basis, I found that a lot of those checks even checks that I've written, I was initially a no, but then I, you know, you're, you're building a funnel of fundraising. You're not just going for a yes and a check. So thinking funnel over fundraising and taking that longer term approach of like, hey, how could I really add value to these potential investors over the course of a year? Not just trying to nail it on the first pitch when there might be a lot of unknowns. So that, that's something that I, I feel is like a, an approach that really works well for me and could give founders some leverage as they almost think of it as like the full funnel marketing and 
no doesn't mean no, uh, you know, three, six months from now, things could change. Totally true. And whether that's with an investor, whether that's with a prospect that you're working, I have many of my clients who have taken my advice and I say, hey, don't give up until you hear no. And they are shocked that they get a deal on like the 21st touch point. And it, it's, it's crazy how often that happens. But the same thing with investing. And I've seen, the, I've seen that happen in my startups as well. And I think that that's fantastic advice. In fact, all of this has been amazing advice, Luke. I really appreciate you coming in, sharing your experience, sharing your expertise with us and our audience. I want to make sure everybody can learn more about you and DBT Ventures. So what's the best way for them to do that? I'd say most of what I share is through uh, LinkedIn um, or email. So the best resource is uh, LinkedIn. So just Luke R. Diaz. Um, my email is just luke at dbtventures.com. And uh, you can find a lot of founder tools, book summaries, all sorts of learning and engagement material at dbtventures.com. Love it. We'll post all that into the description. So if you're listening, you can go grab that right now. Go check it out. He is Luke Diaz, dbtventures.com. Luke, thanks so much for coming on the show. Love the work you're doing, Matt. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And thank you. And everybody out there, thanks for being here. Once again, make sure you are subscribed to the channel. You do not want to miss any of the upcoming guests. We have amazing people like Luke sharing their story and their experience with you so you can scale your SaaS. Thanks very much for being here and we will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Scale Your SaaS. For more help on finding great leads and closing more deals, go to mattwallach.com.